that I did not discourage you by making such slow progress. There's five other words that I want to look at and I want to make sure we get a view of. And so I want to turn back to Ephesians chapter 6 tonight to look at verse 17 so that we can continue to unpack, namely, what is the helmet of salvation? I say there's five other words, but if you look at verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation, we don't need to talk much about the word and or the word the or the word of. So we're going to talk about helmet and salvation. Only two more words. So keep in pace, you're going to get two extra sermons in our time tonight. Um, no, we're going to speed things up just a little bit. This morning as we began to look at verse 17, we, the reason we spent so much time looking at the verb take is because that's the imperative, right? That's the verb. That's what Christians are commanded to do. So, well, we better be under, understand what we're commanded to do and uh, what goes into that so that we can understand what we're actually being called into action to do by taking up the helmet of salvation, that is, receiving what has been given to us. In summary, then, from this morning, we might observe that to take is an active verb of the command to receive what has been given to us, that is, to embrace the work of God, to lay siege upon our minds, our attitudes, our passions, our preferences, so that we may be completely transformed to resemble Christ through His good will. As we begin this evening, it's abundantly clear that there is more to glean in terms of application and knowledge about the nature of salvation in the first part of verse 17 than this one word alone. And so that's why we return there this evening to look at what Paul is delineating between by changing the word that we have unpacked already. This morning, I offered by way of suggestion four means of application. First, that we would work out our own salvation by realizing that it is God's work within you and not a work of your own doing whenever we talk about being saved. Second, to get serious about God's word as the instrument designed by God to transform us. Third, to get serious about God's people, that is, His church, as the vehicle through which God desires to encourage and equip you. And fourthly, to get serious about our personal mission by way of recognizing God's will to see many more come to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. When discussing these things, it may seem as though I've stretched the context of uh, the word take too far, but especially as we look at what Paul is writing in verse 17 and where he's heading with it, as I plan to do this evening, I think we'll see, see that this isn't a stretch at all. First, though, because salvation is of such a general term, even theologically, I think it's important to understand what comprises salvation. And fortunately, I'm blessed that I think our church understands this pretty well. When we delineate the different parts of salvation, not just our salvation that has happened to us, our salvation that is happening to us, and our salvation that will happen to us, I'm not saying that salvation takes place in three different ways or three different forms. Rather, I'm saying this is all part of the whole, and we have to see it in that lens. I cannot be presently sanctified if I have not been previously justified. Likewise, if I've never been previously justified, I have no hope of being prospectively glorified. 
Did you like that? You see how I threw in that alliteration there? That was for my benefit, not yours. But I almost said eventually, and I was like, no, I need something that begins with a P. So we look at salvation in those three different forms, not to break them apart or define them in any special way, but to say that these are all parts of the whole. I can say that I have been saved, that I'm being saved, and that I will be saved, and that's all part of the whole, and that's important. So with that said, let's look at God's Word and ask, how is the salvation seen in receiving and accepting the helmet of salvation? The first part, then, is to look at this helmet. Paul uses this imagery of the Roman soldier, which we've become familiar with, to describe what is the spiritual armor that the Christian is supposed to put on. And he uses, in place of salvation, that this is our helmet. He does that intentionally. First, the helmet, we could look at what is it protecting, and we'll do that in a moment. But before that, before we dig deeper, I would just rather look on the surface, what does the helmet do? Yes, in part, it's a protective element to protect damage that might succumb without it. Also, though, a helmet for the Roman legionary was just as much about identification. Salvation at work through us is in our identity. You'll recall from our own experience as much as in mine that when we see paintings and pictures or even when we watch I, don't, I know no one in this church watches any heathenistic films or anything of that nature, but if you've ever seen a historical fiction or even a documentary about the Roman Empire, immediately what calls to mind is this helmet with a large brush on the top, right? The Romans were concerned about sweeping their ceilings as much as they were sweeping their floors. Well, that brush actually had a purpose, and it wasn't unique to the Romans, Throughout history, when we look at the Greeks and everyone else, they had this crest on the top of their head, and part of it was just so they looked cool. Really seriously, the part of it was so that they would be taller, they'd look more intimidating. That's not the case with the Romans. They implemented for the first time that these were standardized identifiers that said that person's a captain or a corporal or a major. So that in the midst of chaos and melee combat, it would be easy to identify who you need to communicate with and who you need to listen to. It was a way of identifying rank. Now, that's not the case for Christians. There's no ranks. We're all one in Christ, and, and I don't believe in any of it. But the helmet served a purpose in identifying whose side of the conflict you were on. The plume served as a means of identifying the leader in chaos. So too, for Christians, the helmet of salvation serves as a beacon of our own identity. And this is critical as we unpack the purpose of the imagery that Paul is using. Salvation is at work in Christians through their new identity. Remember where Paul begins in this letter explaining that We were at one time enemies of God, children of wrath, all so that he could develop this new identity that has been born within us. If you flip back to chapter 2 of the same letter, Paul writes, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. He goes on in verse 13 to say, But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
The purpose of salvation is explained in verse 15. That Christ might create in himself, by the way, this is Christ's work, not our work, that Christ might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 19 makes it even more clear. Speaking to Christians, Paul says, So then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Taking the helmet of salvation is about embracing our identity as a member of the household of God. When we're out and about and amongst the chaos, we should be easily identifiable because our lives so reflect Christ that the plume on top of our head is a marker that says, I'm one of the Christians. I'm one of the ones who is in Christ. Notice that our identity in Christ is not something concealed. In recent days, it has become more and more common for Christians to think of their missional imperative, this thing that I told us this morning to take seriously, to think of us as covert operations in the midst of a community that rejects Christ. That we need to be sensitive to those around us as not to cause major offense. That we should walk around and we should perhaps even keep our crucifix crosses under our garments so that people can't see them. We may struggle to understand how it is that Christians are supposed to proclaim the gospel to a world that is under the power of the prince of darkness, but I would encourage you to consider how you yourself were called to the same light that we are bringing to the world. That is, that you were not, co- you were not the, the, the recipient of a covert operation that lured you into Christ. Rather, it was through conviction of sin and acknowledging your need of a Savior that you came to faith at all. We must preach the gospel. In our lives, then, we must declare God's truth as ones who have been put on the belt of truth, standing firm on what God has given us. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, you'll be familiar with this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does it seem like Christians today are more ashamed of the gospel than ever? I don't say that to be cantankerous or to stir up division, but as a serious observation. We're afraid to even call ourselves Christians amongst our friends. And I don't say that because I see it in you. I see it in my own household. I see it in my my discussions with my own wife as she talks about her interactions with her friends, particularly her old friends from her old life who knew her as a heathen. Nothing brings her greater shame than when a friend says to her, I just can't believe that you're a pastor's wife. How do you respond to that? With the gospel. That is the gospel that you can't believe that I'm a pastor's wife. That is the change created in me. That is what God has done in my life. My identity is transformed. I'm not concerned about being the same Michelle because I'm not the same Michelle. Likewise, I'm not the same Derek. We're new creations. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We do not wear the salvation that God has offered us under our coats, hidden on a lapel or on a lanyard, but all over our face. It is the helmet. It is completely apparent. There is no concealing our new identity. I'm a Christian. 
It's counterintuitive, especially in the context of spiritual warfare, to put a target on your back and say, I'm the one you're up against. But this is the instruction of confidence and faith that we're exhorted by Paul, or the church in Ephesus was exhorted to put on, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel taking, receiving, the helmet of salvation. I had... um, At Temple, one of our worship pastors, whenever I was there, shared with me his testimony of coming to Christ. If you need any illustration of the significance of denying your identity in Christ, consider how heartbreaking Brian's conversion was. My friend Brian shared with us that before he was saved, he found himself depressed as a young man, and drove his car off of the railing on a highway, trying to end his life. He had no hope. He had no glory. And waking up in the hospital room, one of his friends came to him. I'm sorry, let me back up. Between the car accident and in the hospital room, Brian placed his faith in Christ. He had hope. He was regenerated. And one of his friends came to check on him. And Brian, being a newly converted Christian with all of the zeal of new faith, said, I have to tell you something that is more important than anything I've ever told you about in my entire life. Do you know about this Jesus? Because he has redeemed me and given me new hope for life after I just tried to end my life. And the friend said, oh, yeah, man, I'm a Christian. The consequences of Being ashamed of the gospel are devastating. Our identity, in addition to not being concealed, is not isolated. While it isn't ever throughout his, while I don't see throughout history the means of a collective, I don't know what my notes are saying here. Through the means of a collective that God saves a group of people, He always works individually with people. Okay, I know what I'm trying to say now. We don't find anywhere throughout history God working with a group of people in order to redeem them. Salvation is an individual experience. It always takes place in the life of an individual. That means that as a parent, my faith will never save my children. It'll be their faith that saves them. As a grandparent, My faith will never save my grandchildren. It'll be their faith that saves them. Well, that gives me all the more reason to make sure that they understand what the gospel is, the whole gospel, and not anything hidden from from them. It makes it absolutely necessary that they understand the absolute burden of sin, that they would be convicted for it, that they realize their need of a Savior. But what does God do with the salvation? Yeah, it's a unique experience, but does he call us to experience salvation individually? No. Throughout history, God has always called people. Throughout biblical history, he has always called his people to be in community with one another. That they'd be called out. The nation of Israel is a prime example of this. And in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, it is the church. God's word is clear on what it means to look like a Christian We should also be careful to add what a Christian looks like. The helmet of salvation is not 
something that we design for ourselves that it would resemble whatever we want our unique Christian life to look like. Instead, it's something that is issued to us. God's already told us what the armor of God looks like. The Christian doesn't design their own unique salvation or experience or their unique definition of righteousness. They rest on truth. Again, the belt of truth girds all of these different elements up that they would put on what is already given to them. That rather than looking like an individual, they would look like one of the many. Christians are expected to conform to God's salvation rather than His salvation conforming to the way that we would want to live our own life. Just as the shield of faith is best seen in battle when used in concert with other believers, so too the helmet of salvation is. Colossians 3.13, Paul exhorts the church in Colossae to bear with one another And forgive one another if you have any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. The picture of living a life in Christ is to identify with His church and to take it seriously. Romans 12 verses 4 through 8 says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs all to the other, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. The role of the church is to care for each of these individual members, to function together, to identify our relationship, and to build it into something bigger. The reason we have a helmet that is identical is because we rest on what Christ has already done for us. Our identity is not concealed, and our identity is not individualistic. Lastly, our identity is intentional. It's intentional. This is the whole point of what Paul has written in the letter to the church in Ephesus. Verse 10 of chapter 2 says, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do His good works, which He prepared in advance for us. Think about this. Our identity in Christ is not just for our own glory, It is for God's glory. God saves us so that we can do His good works. He brings redemption into our lives so that we can be a part of redeeming others. Not through our own wit, but through our own reliance upon Christ, through our own dependence upon our new identity being found in Him. In fact, even our forsaking of our previous identity. Salvation is at work in our identity. Now, I said when we talked about the helmet and everything that goes into it, the first part of it is this topical level, right? That This is facing forward. You can see I'm a Christian because it's written on my face. The second level is a little bit deeper. We ask, what is the helmet protecting? That is our mind, our intentions, our attitudes, our thoughts, everything that goes into it. The work of salvation in the life of the Christian, and we've spoken about this many times as we've moved through this passage, is hinged upon our righteousness being developed in Christ, our growing into this new identity. When we talk about what God desires for us, especially in terms of holiness, motivation is the key to God's desire. As a Christian, that should be important to everyone. What God wants is what I should want. Our desire. 
Does God really conscript upon us a desire that we would be perfectly holy and blameless before Him? Well, yes, He says, be holy for I am holy. But if that was really His desire, why did He send His Son to become the propitiation for sin on my own belief? Because I'm not capable of doing that. So then what's He actually after? He wants our attitude to be right as we pursue holiness. The spiritual application, our motivation is what God is concerned with. How many times are we told in the Old Testament that God doesn't delight in burnt offerings that He has conscripted for Israel to perform? Psalm 50 verse 8, Not for your sacrifice do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Hosea 6.6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Quoting from Jeremiah 7, 21 through 23, the author of Hebrews expounds in Hebrews 10, 8 through 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God wants our motivations to be in the right place. He doesn't want our sacrificial offerings to just be something that we do in order to please Him so that we can move on and do our life the way that He wants. He wants us to embrace this new identity so wholeheartedly that it transforms what's beneath the helmet. Romans 12.1 gives us this picture of new covenant worship and what it looks like. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. He wants our mind to be renewed, not through our own means, but through His means. This concept of salvation is taking hold of a victory that He's already provided for us. This continued sanctification that we have already won is the work of transforming us and being faithful to Him. Rather than running from despondence of being offensive through the gospel repeatedly, we are reminded of our need to take the helmet of salvation up. Now, what does that mean? What could it possibly mean? I have a video I'd like to share with you all. If our internet will cooperate... This will be far less dramatic if I can't get the audio to work. I think I got it. 
do it. Okay. Yeah. I listen to that guy talk and I just think, what a nerd. What could it possibly mean that taking up the helmet of salvation has a transformative effect on our brain? 
It amazes me how common in modern-day science, as much as they try to disregard or even to dispute what the Bible has clearly given us as instruction when we look at it, actually do the work of affirming what God has already written. The transformation of the mind. What Paul says is our spiritual worship, that we would sacrifice ourselves before him, takes place as we progressively be made more holy. I don't know what that looks like for you or what particular issue of sin needs to be addressed, but in pastoral counseling, or rather biblical counseling, the concept comes up that we call habituation, right? And basically what that means is, even though you're saved, habituation means that you're still trapped to a particular sin. That can be anxiety. Maybe the sin is simply that you get worked up every time such and such happens, or you get overwhelmed when the loud, when noise gets overwhelming, and, and it takes over your body and everything else, and instead of bringing everything that you have to God, you actually just get worked up and you're anxious. I'm not saying that anxiety every time it comes up is sin, but I'm saying in that case it certainly is. It might be depression. Maybe you see no hope. Well, maybe that issue is simply sinful in the fact that you are not looking to glory that is before us. Maybe it's even more closer to home than that. Maybe it's a pornography addiction. Whatever that means. It seems like every time there's that moment left alone, you can't keep yourself from going where you're supposed to go. Maybe it's anger or wrathfulness or bitterness towards your children or towards your wife or your spouse. All of these different things are habituation. I showed you this video of a man trying to ride a bike because it's very similar. We don't realize everything that is going on inside of us the way that God has designed us. But these neural pathways, what he described as a pathway through the brain, this habituation, this part of our brain that continually goes to the same place over and over again every time whatever unknown stimuli it is brings you to that place. How is it possible that God could actually deliver somebody from addiction or substance abuse? Does he actually have that power? I think the Bible is pretty clear that he actually does. It doesn't matter what the sin is, how it manifests itself, or how it shows up. God actually has the power to deliver people from that. This neural pathway changing. Does anyone recall how long in the video it took for the man to learn how to ride the backwards bike? Eight months. And what did he discover by the end of it when he tried to ride a new bike or a regular bike? He said something. He said he tried to eliminate a cognitive bias, but in so doing, he discovered he could only reallocate that bias. If that's true for riding a bike, I think it's true for sin. We can reallocate our sinful biases or our neural pathways, that we would be reconstructed. Our brain would literally be transformed. The physiological structure of our brain, I mentioned this morning, that in Christ, our cardiovascular system's been changed, our pulmonary system's been changed. So can your neural pathways can actually be transformed and reshaped. The power of salvation is greater than we let on. The power of salvation and actually confessing sin can actually change the way that we view, think about, and even interact with our world. Whether it's habituation or it's simply an 
unwilling attitude to bring what is before us to God. He is willing to transform our minds. And of course, we take what He has given us, which means it is His work, not our own. In this, we must acknowledge that habituation does not go away on its own without sincere acknowledgement and grief over sin. This repentance is ultimately what leads to replacing and reallocating that neural pathway or that cognitive bias to the new holy condition that God is bringing us to. Rather than simply trying to strong-arm your way through resisting sin, get down on your knees and start praying. Reallocate that part of your brain that is tempted to bring every struggle to God. In fact, you'll probably pray more. Rather than trying to figure out everything that God has given you whenever you're anxious or you're overwhelmed or you're depressed, read the promises of God that they would be reaffirmed in your mind and that it could actually take hold and change your life. Our salvation is definitely at work in the present and in now. It is transforming into us in our identity that everyone can see and also in our transformation that everyone cannot see. I said salvation is taking place in three areas. Well, I would be forlorn and reclimped if I didn't mention our future glory. Consider the context of what Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter 6. Exhorting the church to put on the whole armor of God, he doesn't end there, but he goes in verse 18 to say, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all his perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus with an imperative, and then he shifts gears and he says, and don't forget about me. The evidence of this being a communal relationship, that our relationship, especially within the churches and even the larger body of Christ as a whole, is that we depend on one another to provide for us when we are weak. Paul asked the church in Ephesus to pray that he would be bold in speaking the truth. Ask the church to pray for supplication, that he would be provided everything that he needs, for perseverance. More succinctly, he develops the same idea of what he is going through in Romans chapter 5. Even though he's an ambassador in chains, in a literal sense, he writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by the way, that's our past salvation, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into one grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only in that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I'm telling you guys, this Paul guy is nuts. We rejoice in our sufferings. I rejoice as an ambassador of Christ in chains. I pray that you wouldn't pray that, you de that I'm delivered, but pray that even though I'm in chains, that you would give me the words to speak boldly what is the gospel truth before the people that have captivated me. Because I'm not their captive, I'm Christ's captive because I've been saved. I've been identified with him. I'm wearing the brush helmet.
We rejoice in our sufferings, sufferings because we know that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we were wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We're being renewed. This is transformation all over again, but he goes on. We know that we're being renewed, and this has application not just for today, but in tomorrow and in our hope of salvation right now. Being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I'm not saying that it's easy to boldly put on the helmet of salvation that everyone would know that you're a Christian. One of those crazy fanatics. But we know that any trouble that comes with it will be far outweighed by the eternal glory that we have in the future. One more verse, Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. And then I asked, then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. What's God's real desire and salvation? That we would delight in him. 